We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. There were a couple of points that I wanted to highlight from last week or actually expand on just a touch from last week. Um, so, again, the, the period that we, you know, like we, like, uh, like Steve said, we ended up talking about a, a thousand-year period. Um, but the period of the prophets, the period that we're, that we're really looking at, um, comprises uh, really less than a 250-year period, um, uh, essentially from about 750 before the Common Era to about 530 before the Common Era. Um, so what is that? 220 years, okay? Uh, which is, in the scope of Jewish history and even Christian history, not actually a very long time. Um, so there's a question um, that might arise, like why is that the period of the literary prophets, right? Was, does that mean that there was no prophecy beforehand? And does that mean that there's no prophecy afterwards? I mean, the, the question of whether there's no prophecy afterwards is one of the questions that is really the central question that we're thinking about, I want to have like us have in the back of our minds uh, as we have this class. Um, but we know, as we talked about yesterday, that, there, that uh, from the Jewish tradition's perspective, and I think from the Christian tradition's perspective, and, and also from the perspective of Islam, that there was prophecy before this period of the literary prophets. Um, Abraham, Sarah, uh, uh, Moses, Miriam, uh, the, Samuel, Nathan, these are all people that are considered by Jewish tradition and some, some, some cases stated explicitly to be prophets. Um, so why don't they have books of their own? And why aren't they in this category that we call literary prophets? So nobody really knows the answer to that question. Uh, but we don't know exactly why, but sometime around the 760s, 750s BCE, uh, prophecy became literary. And so really what we're talking about is not the, is not the uh, institution of prophecy itself, but a particular vehicle for prophecy, which is, um, which is uh, uh, very crafted, usually uh, very literary, poetic uh, um, sermons, lectures, uh, uh, invocations uh, that encapsulate the prophet's message in a very stylized way, right? So that uh, certainly, as we said, doesn't mean that there wasn't prophecy before. It just uh, people didn't communicate their prophecies in that way. And perhaps there's prophecy after. It's just the medium is different. So why does this happen at this time? I think there's a couple of things that we should uh, think about. The first is, I don't know how heretical this is going to be, um, uh, but most of, uh, most of what we now call the Hebrew Bible was written during that time. Okay, so I understand traditionally in Judaism, 
probably in Christianity, um, we, uh, we we take kind of uh, Exodus at face value and say that uh, that 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 God dropped the Bible out of the sky uh, to Moses on top of a mountain, and there was the Bible. Uh, and maybe that's what happened. Uh, but um, historians and biblical critics tend to think that that's not exactly how the Bible came into being, um, that it is quite possible that a lot of it extends from pre-existing material, um, but, that, uh, but that it was written down and formalized uh, beginning in the 8th century. Uh, and so originally, and Holly sent some of this out, that, uh, that originally biblical critics thought that maybe there were uh, four different traditions uh, that eventually got woven together into what we call the, the Bible. Uh, now scholars think that there are uh, maybe a dozen uh, literary traditions that get woven into the Bible. But, but one way or another, uh, those literary traditions, those texts, are written during this time period from about the 750s, which that's the height of both the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and, um, and, the, uh, and the close of the Babylonian exile, return of, of the exiles to, uh, to Jerusalem. Okay, so if you think about that, that actually may make sense, right? So the height of the power and prestige of these uh, countries, people have the, um, people have the education, the ability to, uh, to write, uh, they become literate in ways that they may not have been before. You know, uh, a lot of uh, scholars think that the Israelites were were basically like Canaanite hillbillies that made their way in from the hill country uh, in the north, and they kind of got uh, they got cosmopolitanized in the in the city centers of of, of Israel and, and Judah, um, and uh, and so literacy becomes more commonplace and. Uh, public discourse becomes more commonplace. Urban life becomes more commonplace. Uh, people are not pastoral nomads anymore. They're interacting with each other. They're engaging with each other. Um, uh, uh, kings have the resources to commission texts to be written and have scribes to write them down. Right. So all that is happening during this time. You can imagine also why it continues into the Babylonian exile because uh, not only do people have the skills and the abilities, the people who get exiled to Babylon, if you remember from last week in 586, are the are the nobility and the aristocracy of the kingdom of Judah. So they have the ability to to, to write. They have the desire to write, and they're in exile, so they, um, and, and remember there's sort of a revolutionary idea that even though we're in exile, normally what that would mean in the ancient world is that their God conquered my God, and you know, if you can't beat them, join them. But one of the revolutions of Israelite religion, the ancestor of Judaism and Christianity, is that there is one God. And so that one God has to be uh, not only the God that I worship when I'm in Israel, but also the God that I worship in Babylon. And if there's one God, it's also maybe the reason that I'm in Babylon. And so the people of Judah, the aristocrats of Judah, who are living in Babylon, um, are uh, concerned, might be concerned that they uh, that uh, uh, that they might lose their traditions and their texts while they're in exile, a condition that they assumed pretty radically, would only be temporary, in part because there were prophets telling them that it would only be temporary. So, so they wrote it down there. So anyway, so part of why these texts get written down in this period are, are all these reasons. Um, but another actually may be something more simple, and I think something actually pretty relatable. Um, because, I don't know, how many of you in this room were alive um, when Elvis was first performing? Right? <laughs> 
Uh, now, I get the, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the racial problematics of what I'm about to say, um, but just for the ease of, for simplicity's sake, um, sometimes a, a, a figure, an artist comes along that revolutionizes how people communicate and how art gets done, right? And to, or the Beatles, right? So in around 760, 750, um, there was a person um, who traveled from Judah in the south to Israel in the north and began these uh, uh, intricate, beautiful, poetic uh, prophecies uh, that were challenging and memorable and incriminating uh, and powerful. And it could be that that first literary prophet that, actually, that we have the record of maybe was the first literary prophet, maybe was the Elvis of the ancient world and created a new genre, a new art form that everyone after him um, is trying to replicate and trying to emulate. So that prophet was the prophet Amos, which uh, Holly's, Reverend Holly's going to tell us about in, in a little bit, but it's possible that that's that he that that he innovated this new style of communicating prophecy that had never happened before, and it was so compelling that subsequent people followed suit thereafter. Um, okay, uh, I want to add just a couple of other things. Can I do that? <laughs> um, you remember that part in the text message today? Yeah. Um, okay. So okay, I have a couple, just a couple of other things because I thought it was really important because I don't think I really like I really I really highlighted this last time. So, so I think that you know, so first question like why you know why do we have this new kind of prophecy that's happening then in these two hundred or so years? Um, and so there's the technical point that people are writing things down in different ways at this time. Um, but there's also, I think, dynamics that are happening in the world that I think we touched on, I touched on last week, but I don't think I really, really hit home, but I think it's really important. So remember I just said that around the year 750, 740, uh, before the Common Era, these are the uh, pinnacles of prestige and power of the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdoms of, and the kingdom of Judah. Uh, and that's where this form of literary prophecy really starts um, is in the context of, of, of uh, power and prosperity. Now, you might think to yourself, um, that seems strange, right? Like, wouldn't the prophetic voices, you know, come out of, like, like uh, out of, you know, uh, subjugation and enslavement? You know, like, that's where Moses comes from, after all. But if you think about it, that's not where Moses comes from, right? Moses might have been born to Hebrew parents, uh, to slaves, but he's raised in Pharaoh's palace, uh, and so, on some level, prophecy emerges as a response to power and prosperity. Eventually, there are prophets, the style continues, and they may not necessarily be railing against power and prosperity. Sometimes they might be comforting people who have just been exiled, whatever. So the style continues, but it emerges, the, style, the form emerges as a response to power and prosperity. So the, the earliest prophets um, are inveying. And uh, again, we're going to talk about this a little bit later as we look at some of the individual prophets, like, like Amos and Hosea, Isaiah, these are the early prophets. Uh, earliest of the, of the literary prophets. They're inveighing against the veneration in their society of power, class, status, and wealth. 
and they're arguing that this is out of alignment with a God in whose eyes all are equal. Um, so they're saying that it is possible that this mode of living, this organization of society is a perversion of values. And if we're not careful, a betrayal of what God is calling us to do. Um, some of the prophets point out that the hallmark of power is corruption, exploitation, oppression, and inequality. And if you think about it, there's a lot of truth in that claim. Right? The power and status can be morally distorting. Uh, often, um, when we have power, when we have prosperity, when we have privilege, we end up uh, celebrating, like the book of Deuteronomy says, you're going to inherit this land. Book of Deuteronomy, by the way, uh, written probably around the year 622 BCE, so during this period in the province of Judah. And the book of Deuteronomy says that you're going to inherit this land, you're going to prosper in it, there's going to be all kinds of fruit, and it's going to be great. And you're going to say, it was because of what I did that I got all this stuff, and your heart is going to grow haughty, and you're going to forget God. Um, so it's possible that Deuteronomy was written in 1300 BCE and was a prophetic work, or it was written at a time that people were making a social commentary about their own society, right? And so I, that's, I think, an insight, and, and the reason people think that it was probably written around that time, uh, there's a number of reasons, but partially they're, you know, they're, they're looking at the literary prophets and they're saying, man, the messages of the literary prophets sound a lot like the book of Deuteronomy, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah. They sound a lot like the book of Deuteronomy. So one is commenting on the other, most likely. Uh, and for various reasons, they think that the commenting is happening from, uh, uh, well, they may be commenting on each other and they may be simultaneous. But what the, the, the main point, the insight is that, uh, Prosperity can um, can can uh, uh, can has the potential of distorting our own worldview, um, and the challenge of prosperity and power is that oftentimes, um, in in order to hold on to or accumulate more prosperity and power, in order in order to hold on to what we already have, um, we end up. Um, uh, uh, seeing virtually everything as a means to that end, right? So, and that's sometimes, sometimes that is conscious and sometimes that is unconscious, right? I mean, you could probably think of a million examples. I'll just give one, right? And I'll say this is like a personal example, okay? Um, I live in a pretty comfortable life uh, and I understand that uh, some of my consumption choices are, uh, are, are, uh, are, are, destroying the planet, right? Um, but I'm still cooling my house in the summer to a pretty significant degree, right? Because I don't want to give up the comfort that I'm enjoying. And so that's how I think prosperity has a tendency to make us uh, say, well, you know, every moral decision ultimately is, a, is we're going to calculate it as a, um, as a means to our own ends. So, that's not true universally, 
I try to be okay, right? But um, uh, uh, but that I think is what the prophets are, are pointing out, in particularly in in this moment. And they um, they're not afraid to call out the religious structure of their time, right? So if you remember toward the end of the session last week, I talked about how there were really kind of three power centers in the ancient world. There were there were the monarchs, the 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 sovereign, the king, the priests. And the prophets, right? And these were sort of the division of, uh, of powers in, in ancient times. Most of the power lied in the monarchy, of course, lay in the monarchy, of course. But the priests had a significant amount of power. The priesthood, the religious infrastructure, had a significant amount of power because in that kind of religious system, you needed the priests in order to commune with the divine. Um, in some ways, I um, mean to like Catholic bash, but in some ways it's kind of like still Catholicism today where priests are, are actually a conduit uh, and a channel to the divine, uh, or at least uh, officially seen that way. Um, so the, the prophets um, are sometimes challenging that, um, that, that power structure and saying that, uh, that, that, just because it's religious power doesn't mean that it is not power susceptible to all of the problems of power that we're pointing out about the monarchy. Um, and so therefore pointing out sometimes, and this is something that um, I know is echoed in, um, in, in the Gospels, um, is they're pointing out the hypocrisy laden in religious life um, and, and challenging those, those systems in that structure. Right? And then finally, say, okay, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, prosperous and powerful kingdoms. Ultimately, we're talking about why these prosperous and powerful kingdoms are crumbling, right, in the books of Jeremiah and, and so on. Um, but either why, you know, what's the problem with them or why they're falling apart. And the rationale that the prophets are giving, and this why this, this time in particular it's also coincidentally why I think you hear a rise of people thinking about prophetic models and prophetic language in our time because we live in a time and a place of great power, prosperity, and from a certain perspective, empire too. Um, that the prophets at that time are asking, you know, what is, what is the source of prosperity? And challenging the, um, the, the, those in positions of authority at their time say, like, you think that the, the source of uh, prosperity is, is your own ability to acquire it, your armies, your taxation, your building projects, um, your, uh, your employment model, whatever it is, right? But the prophets are saying that is not the real source of power or that's not the real source of prosperity. And the source of prosperity is alignment with God. And so that's the argument that they make during times of prosperity and during times of power, is that if you're not careful, if you remain in, uh, out of alignment, if you think of the world through a, a prism that is, uh, that is about your own acquisition of, of prosperity, your own grasp on power, and not about the source of prosperity being alignment with God, you're going to lose what you've gained. And then in a time of loss, they're saying, the reason that we're losing what we've gained is because our values were out of whack. 
So I thought that that was uh, important. I know it took a little bit of time, but I thought that that was really important uh, in, uh, in, in giving a little bit more depth and a little bit more context to, uh, to what we were talking about last week. And today. And next week, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, any questions about any of that? Yeah, Haley? This is sort of off topic, but when you're talking about the writing down of the Bible, um, is the way that we put together the Torah today, does that date back to those ancient times, or can we date that to more modern times? That's a good question. Yeah. So, um, for those who don't remember from last week, the Torah is the, the Hebrew term that Jews use for the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, five books of Moses, sometimes called. Um, so, most, okay, traditional Jewish thought, or rabbinic thought, uh, holds, kind of views Exodus as a historical text, and so therefore says, the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai as a unity. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all given to Moses by God at Mount Sinai around the year 1250 BCE. Uh, modern scholarship looks at the text and says, um, this does not look like it was written by one author. Uh, and we see parallels of these texts and sources in other places in archaeology and in other sources in ancient history, where there's a complex field of, 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 of scholarship and criticism. And so what they say is that the texts that eventually come to comprise the Bible were most likely written essentially during the time period that we're talking about, between about 750 BCE and 530 BCE. Uh, and, uh, and then redacted, edited into one text, probably sometime during the Babylonian exile, which was between 586 BCE and 538 BCE. Okay? People don't know exactly. There are different theories about it. Some people say maybe it was redacted as a unified text after the return of the exiles, which was in 538, um, or the beginning of the return of the exiles was in 538. Um, but people don't know exactly. Uh, and, um, and, and so, uh, so the, the, the book that we call the Torah now, um, according to those people, it was compiled as a, a united text during that time. Um, now, the, the scrolls that we have here, right, so this is a little bit more complicated than that because um, we actually don't have a full manuscript of the Torah in its original, um, I think, earlier than, well, it's complicated, but earlier than, than 1,000, give or take, uh, of the Common Era. So just about 1,000 years ago is the oldest manuscript that we have. Um, it's pretty comparable as a whole, as a full text. Um, uh, but obviously, you know, I mean, you can look at, say, the Babylonian Talmud is a good example, right? Babylonian Talmud quotes extensively from the Hebrew Bible and from the Pentateuch, uh, from the five books of Moses. Uh, Babylonian Talmud was, uh, was edited and completed around the year 600 of the Common Era, so about a thousand years uh, after, uh, after I'm saying that the scholars think the Torah was completed, um, and 
the verses that they quote and the way they quote them are identical to what we would see in our text too. So they, 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 they clearly had that text by then. Jesus quotes extensively yeah, from it in the Gospels. They clearly had the text by then. Right. That's what I was going to add. Yeah. Jesus quoted, and it was obvious that scholars believe that there was, this was a formative, like, text. When, when was the Septuagint written? Do you remember? <laughs> that sounds that sounds old, but you could be right. 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 So right. So the Septuagint is um, one of the earliest. Full versions of the uh, of, of the uh, of the Pentateuch that we have that actually I think includes the Book of Joshua too, right? That's Sep- Septuagint. It was, it was old enough to be you know, translating it into Greek before the Romans. Right, before the Roman period. So, so it was definitely completed by then. We know, uh, and um, and if you go to the uh, if you go to uh, the Israel Museum you could see uh, um, a lot of uh, incredible fragments from a group of texts that we usually call the Dead Sea Scrolls because they were found there were scrolls that were found near the Dead Sea in Israel and caves in the area called Qumran um, and those uh, are roughly contemporaneous with the time of Jesus uh, and there's a lot of direct parallels and, and identical text between those and the Hebrew Bible, so chances are good that those were um, variations of an already authoritative uh, Hebrew Bible at the time. Um, so it's pe- scholars try to piece together. We don't, the honest truth is we don't have uh, we don't uh, we don't have clear knowledge, which is why a lot of people say, well, you know, if I'm going to take the like patchwork quilt of scholarship versus what Jews have been saying for 3,000 years, um, then I'm going to go with what Jews have been saying for 3,000 years. The Torah was given to God, uh, by God uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai, um, and it was a unity then. If God wants to write in the voice of multiple authors, God could write in the voice of multiple authors. That's not necessarily um, uh, evidence that it was written by multiple authors. Um, so some, in, in a sense, it's a matter of faith. Well, the, uh, in the book of Daniel, I want to say ten. Is that right? Oh, here I can. So the book of Daniel is not in the um, uh, not in the Jewish canon of the prophetic books. I don't know if it is in the uh, in the Christian canon. Um, it's uh, it's in the section that we call Ketuvim, which are the uh, other writings. Um, even though Daniel purports to be a book of a, of a prophet living um, during the the uh, time of the Babylonian Empire, um, it probably wasn't, and it was probably actually the latest book or one of the latest books in the Bible to be written, maybe even around the time of uh, the um, uh, of the Macedonian conquest of. Um, of the land of Israel in the fourth century BCE. Um, so Daniel has, here we go. Daniel has 12 chapters in the canon. Yeah. How many in yours? Oh, yeah. In the flood, in the 
Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay. Uh, I was going to give a little introduction to the sanctuary. Um, how many of you, uh, for how many of you is this your first time in a Jewish prayer space? So a number of you. Okay. Um, welcome. welcome. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do this like, like really on one foot. Okay. Um, all right. So the first thing I want to say is, uh, in the language of the prophet Amos, I am not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. Uh, were I, I would have predicted that, uh, uh, when the lights are out outside, uh, when it's dark outside, we can't see the stained glass windows, which is really the reason I was going to have us, uh, uh, here tonight. Okay, sorry about that. Please come back. Uh, you're welcome anytime. Uh, for those of you who uh, are not part of the Jewish faith and not part of this congregation, you're welcome anytime. Um, when we have, uh, we have services here on Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock, um, please join us. You'll see the windows in all their splendor. Um, but the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the congregation was founded in 1931. Uh, this building began to be built in 19... Sorry, let me not use the passive voice. They began to build this building in 1939. Um, a major world event happened in 1939 that uh, delayed the uh, production, uh, the construction of this building uh, for some time. Uh, and so the building was not completed until 1949. Um, so the sanctuary that you're in right now was not completed until 1949. So that's... So we just got a plaque from the... General Assembly uh, uh, commending us, resolution commending us on, on uh, uh, 70 years of being in our sanctuary here. Um, and uh, so the Jewish sanctuaries are, are designed in a sense to mimic the ancient temple in Jerusalem. Um, so the ancient temple in Jerusalem, uh, the, the focal point of the ancient temple um, would have been uh, what was known as the Kodesh Kodoshim, the Holy of Holies, um, or sometimes the Inner Sanctum. Uh, and that was uh, uh, believed to be the, 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 the seat of God on earth, uh, where the divine presence uh, dwelled. And so uh, no one was allowed to go into that space except for the uh, high priest and only one day of year on uh, Yom Kippur, on the holy day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Uh, and so today the synagogue uh, is, is kind of oriented in a similar way, that the focal point um, is, is in a sense a holy of holies, uh, but instead of us believing it to be the seat of God, uh, it is God's um, uh, uh, best representation on earth according to Jewish tradition, which is God's instruction in Torah. So the focal point is the ark. Inside, behind that curtain, are scrolls of Torah. We have about a dozen scrolls in there. Um, that's just showing off. You don't necessarily need to have that, uh, but um, um, uh, all you really need is, all you actually need is, is one, uh, but nevertheless, that's what we have behind there. Um, on the top of the, um, of the curtain, which is called a parochia, is actually a quote from two prophets. It's a, a quote repeated by two prophets, Isaiah and Micah, Ki mitzion tetei Torah udvar Adonai Mirushalayim. Uh, uh, for from Zion, uh, Torah instruction will come forth, uh, and the word of God from Jerusalem. 
Um, so these are prophets uh, prophesying that uh, actually during, uh, during the, the uh, time of the kingdom of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem uh, and saying that, um, that uh, um, uh, ultimately God's uh, word is going to emanate from this place even if it's not right now. Right? So that's where that uh, uh, text comes from. It's also, we sing that line as we take out the Torah um, uh, on Saturday morning. So every, every Shabbat, every Sabbath, we open uh, the ark, we take out the Torahs, we parade it around the sanctuary, um, people give it a kiss as a, as a sign of uh, love and, and reverence, and we read from it uh, from that table there. Um, what else can I tell you about the sanctuary that's like worth, that's relevant to know? Um, this raised platform is called a bima, uh, um, uh, an elevated place. Uh, um, uh, the temple also would have had a bima, an elevated place. Um, it would have been the place where the priests would bless the people from, from where the priests would bless the people. Um, typically, synagogues are oriented uh, east to west with the ark uh, on the eastern part of the sanctuary. Uh, and the direction of prayer going east, why? Toward Jerusalem, good, which is the uh, holy city in Jewish tradition. This synagogue, for those of you who are geographically inclined, is not oriented that way. Uh, but, um, uh, but that is, uh, you know, say la vie. No, so, uh, so uh, if we were in a room that didn't have an ark, Right, uh, that didn't have a Torah scroll, we would turn to face east. But because there's an ark this way, it would be uh, uh, disrespectful to the to, to the Torah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So I think any questions about the sanctuary? Is there are there any major differences? Like I'm thinking ahead. So next week we'll be at Seventh Street Christian Church, and I'm thinking. Wow, there can be a lot of different um, architectural, there can be many architectural differences in Christian churches and, and sanctuaries. Does it differ a lot for Judaism? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there, there are definitely some consistencies, right? So if you, you know, at least in the, uh, in the principles, right? So, you know, virtually every sitting I could go into, the focal point will be the art. Um, uh, you know, they'll, um, uh, they'll usually have menorahs or at least one menorah. Um, uh, they'll usually have a bima. Sometimes the bima is in the middle of the room. That's the Sephardic style, the, um, Spanish, the Jews of Spanish and, uh, Middle Eastern and North African descent tend to have their synagogues, uh, set up in the round. Uh, or with the, or if not in the round, then they still have the uh, the reading table and the and the bima in the middle of the room. Um, so that's a difference in style among those different ethnic groups. Um, but still, the ark will be in the front. Um, you know, and then and then it's just like architectural choices and stylistic choices. So this is a very kind of Art Deco style in here. Um, but if you go to uh, Bethahaba, as an example, I don't know if any of you have ever been there. You know, it's very sort of like a, I don't know what you call it, Baroque, classical, neoclassical, um, uh, and uh, or a tea, uh in the uh, in the West End um, is very kind of like modern. A lot of like you know, what we call Jerusalem stone, which is like a white limestone um, that uh, that that you can find that is typically found in Jerusalem. 
uh, and a lot of like natural light and things like that, right? So that's a more common sort of modern style is to incorporate a lot of natural light and things like that. But yeah. Um, in my, when I'm a little bit more flippant about it, I say that our synagogue here, built in 1949, um, and this is actually true of not just our synagogue, of most synagogues, American Jews uh, tend to mimic and reflect, actually this is not true only of American Jews, it's true of Jews historically, tend to mimic and reflect the style of the surrounding culture in which we find ourselves, right? So. This synagogue looks a lot like looks a lot like Seventh Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Uh, it looks a lot it's like the, in the it started construction in the same year. Yeah, right. So it looks yeah. a lot like the churches that were because we, we wanted to show, you know, like we made it and we right. we can have uh, you know synagogues that and we're normal people, you know. Um, is it true? Like, I mean, another thing is about what could be about like fitting fitting in. Yeah, you've been. If a community has been ostracized, or um, yeah, you, you were just historically coming out of World War II, and like you, I could see wanting to create something that maybe doesn't. Yes, we've made it, like with size, but I mean they're not just here, but like also. But also like, right, but also, like, but also we're part of the we're part, we're of, part community. of the community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. No, I think that that's absolutely right, and I don't think it's just true of you know of, of like the post-war era. I think no. that, you know, yeah, because if you go to you know, if you go to uh, uh, Florence, Italy, for example, right? There's a gorgeous synagogue there um, that mimics the style of uh, of, of uh, the Florentine style, right? Um, it's true, you know, when when you go anywhere. Well, when I was studying, I lived in studied in Thailand, and I was living actually in a, a Catholic community, and they had built. A, a Catholic church, but replicated it to look like a Buddhist temple. But people, it was beautifully architectural wise. But the Thai people were very upset because they came in and they're like, "This is not a Buddhist temple." <laughs> anyway, but it was. But they wanted to fit in, right? Yeah. Like the Catholic church wanted to fit in there. So. Um, okay. Any other questions about the? Sanctuary. This. <laughs> oh, okay. That's. Is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, above, thank you, uh, Hedy. Um, above the ark um, is a, a light that's hanging. That's what we call the Ner Tamid. Um, it's uh, the, meaning the eternal light. Um, and there was, again, it's, uh, it's uh, echoing, evoking what was present in the temple. The, the temple. Uh, had an, had an everlasting fire burning on the altar, um, and uh, which which was meant to symbolize God's enduring connection with covenant with the uh, children of Israel. Um, the enduring covenant between the children of Israel is one of the themes that the prophets highlights. Right, it's why you know you might get exiled, but God's going to take you back eventually. Right, so that um, so that eternal light is uh, reflected uh, in sanctuaries again. Depending on what synagogue you go to, it might look different. I've been in synagogues where there's like an actual kind of gas line feeding it, and so it's an actual flame. It's really cool. Seems like fire hazard, but um, <laughs> it's a little, 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 uh, little risky for my blood. But um, so anyway, that's our that's our eternal light, and then behind it, um, you see uh, the two tablets um, with uh, the Ten Commandments written in Hebrew lettering. So the Hebrew lettering. Uh, there are the, basically the first two words of each commandment, um, which I think Jewish
Jewish tradition regards them differently than Christian traditions. So the first commandment for us is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Is that the first commandment in Christian tradition? Uh, and the second commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Oh. All right. Huh. All right, let's table this. Topic. We'll table that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can go on a whole yeah. other yeah. avenue of... All right, do you want to... Uh, Are we going chronological order? Or I <laughs> so I had it in order of the windows, uh, but um, why don't we... Well, yeah, but let, but I'm, but that gives me like the first three. So why don't you oh, take why don't you take a couple and then I'll go. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So I feel incredibly inadequate sharing about the prophets. So um, feel free to to chime in a little bit. Same. Same. Really? No, but you're anyway. Um, I uh, I'm gonna come over here just because your phone is distracting. But um, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's just so the outline. first. Um, as he shared, uh, the first uh, prophet, literary prophet, is Amos. Um, and I, the way I kind of did this is, is we do not have time. I'm not like Mike. Um, <laughs> well, you, you, you are, you, you're really good on your feet. That's not me. Um, I have more of like if we had um, like profit cards, like you have baseball trading cards. If we had profit trading cards, like I just have like some top highlights, um, so that at least if you're, when you walk out of here, you can have some kind of idea of like, oh yeah, Amos, like, got it, right? Um, Let's so, make those cards. So some stats, I got some stats. Yeah. <laughs> this is Simpsons episode where they have that. Like trading, yeah. yeah. Ned Flanders has the kids with, uh, anyway, okay. Like different, we can make Someone has a Methuselah rookie card. <laughs> I would, I'm surprised that they don't already exist. Actually, they probably do. They probably have other, like, lots of other profits, though, that aren't necessarily literally. Yeah. Because you're not going to make a lot of money if you're just trading literary profit cards. No. But if you're, anyway, okay. So, <laughs> so Amos is from, what I would hope y'all know about the prophets when we can is where they are from and maybe where they were, like, speaking to. So Amos is from Judah. Um... Tekoa, is that how y'all pronounce it too? Tekoa. Um, but prophesying in the northern kingdom. Um, and he prophesied during Jeroboam, or, uh, who's the, the king in the north, or you call him Uzziah? Uzziah, yeah. Uzziah. Uzziah. Oh, Uzziah is how that we Anglicanize it, right? Uzziah. You come in and say Uzziah, we're like, who are you talking about? Um, his employer was, I call him a freelance prophet. Um, he doesn't have, because, you know, as we were talking, like, um, uh, sometimes they're, 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 they're employed by, by a king, but, but Amos, maybe being a first, who knows, he's a freelance prophet, which gives him a lot of, um, flexibility. I used to be a freelance minister and it was really great because I didn't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about like, um, upsetting anyone too much. You know, you're like, I don't care, which is exactly how Amos totally moved. Right, he didn't have a board to report to. We, we <laughs> um, so his style is confrontational and abrasive. Um, overall, he has no attempt, like he makes no attempt to win over anyone he condemns. Um, but his theme uh, overall is like justice 
like as you had just shared, seek me and live. You shared it in Hebrew, but seek me and live, sort of a theme. Um, we're not sure Bethel, um, where he's from, or um, Bethel uh, is not far from the south, so he didn't have far to travel where he was like preaching to. But we're not sure. You know, there's questions raised about maybe his political loyalties. Um, maybe he didn't regard the boundary between the north and the south, but for, anyways, he was uh, critical of the cult at Bethel. Um, we do know, as we had started to get into a little bit, like, we can tell from context clues, like, you know, not just, like, when a text is is written, but also maybe who edited it. So um, Amos was was edited in the southern kingdom and presents a Judean perspective. So even though, does that make sense? So he's preaching to the north, but clearly this text was edited somewhere by the south. So um, some highlights. Uh, let's see. I think one of my highlight favorites is uh, prophecy highlights. Um, his encounter with the priest Amaziah. Is that how you say it too? Amaziah? Sure. How do you say it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, chapter 7. Anyway, Amos is talking about yeah, the sure. cult. Yeah. Amazia. Amazia. Yeah. Amazia. Yeah. Okay. Um, you don't have the I sound in Hebrew. Ah, so that's very yeah. helpful. Yeah. yeah the, when you see Amazia. I-A-H, it's usually Yah. Yah. Yeah. Amazia. Okay. Very helpful. Um, so Amos is talking about the fall of Israel to the, to the priest. Now, remember, you know, the king is... Um, the, the, the king wants to keep the, you know, overall the peace. He wants to take, maybe keep power, um, but also realizes in order to do that, um, you've got to have a priest to make all the sacrifices and do all the prayers and do all the right things. Um, and sometimes um, that's not always jiving. So a lot of times, most of the time, we see a prophet calling out a priest, saying, you're not doing your job. Um, and so... Uh, Amos goes to the priest, Amaziah, um, and Amos is all, he's, he's talking about the potential fall of Israel. That's what he's prophesying. Israel's going to fall, and it makes Amaziah a bit nervous because he doesn't want the king thinking that he's endorsing Amos as a prophet. And I, so I can just imagine this. So he tells him to go back to where you came from. Um, and, and he's not loyal to King Jeroboam. Amos tells him that he's not a prophet. This You just said this too. Um, I'm not actually a prophet, right? Like, I don't come from a lineage of prophets. Uh, and I was just a shepherd before I was called. Um, and he is not part of any guild, and he's not sitting at the king's table. And um, he also prophesied that Amaziah's wife was going to become a prostitute. So you can imagine how well that went over. So, um, yeah, so all that, that's how he gets his confrontation. You do a whole class on prophetic insults. <laughs> oh, they're so full. Like, it's just chock full of, like, prophetic insults. Um, all right. So some other things. You know, uh, Amos has, is a collection of, sh- of different oracles. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 are against the various nations, including Israel. Chapters 3 through 6, a collection of short oracles around social injustice. Uh, as we have shared, those who are enjoy their leisure at the expense of the poor, or as Rabbi Knopf called it in his 
uh, Advent sermon at Seventh Street Christian Church, uh, brunching on the abyss. Brunching on the edge of the abyss. <laughs> on the yeah. edge. Um, but uh, the other theme uh, is uh, cult, the cult behavior, um, particularly at Bethel, which was sinful because it wasn't Jerusalem. So, uh, and then chapters seven through nine. Serious, a series of uh, other visions. Um, that's where the account uh, with uh, priest Amazia takes place in the destruction of the temple. So we prophesize the destruction of the temple. Um, now, this was interesting that I had read, and I'm curious how it's interpreted in um, Jewish tradition. Amos does not dispute that God brought Israel out of Egypt, but he questions the significance attached to it. So, um, I have to actually look at the passage. Uh, okay. what, what's the passage? I don't have it written oh. down. Don't worry. I just it was it just yeah. We'll come back to that. So, so listen, I think that that one of the things that um, I notice in Amos is he he does that a little bit. He he tries to he tries to um, uh, what's what's the word I want to look for? He he, he tries to um, call out Israel mm-hmm. for um, for like holding itself in higher esteem yes, than it than really it deserves. Yes. Right. So so the the whole beginning of the book of Amos, I think I mentioned this last week. It starts out with these you know these like sermons um, that are against right. you know against all these other the nations, or against not. like against Tyre and against uh, Egypt, I think, and against Babylon, whatever, or against Assyria. Uh, and you can imagine that you know this you know this, this southern preacher goes up north, and he's, 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 like, imagine, like, I'm from Georgia, I go to New York, and I start telling those New Yorkers, like, how terrible people are in California, and how terrible the people are in France, and, how, and I'm, like, going through, and the crowd is getting riled up, and then I say, and also, you. And also <laughs> let me tell you about New York, right? So that's what Amos does yeah. there, right? He's, like, yeah. he goes through, like, all these, like, people that they all hate anyway, and he's, like, but you're no better than that. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's an absolute theme that um, Israel has less excuse at misconduct than perhaps other people because in his perspective, um, election, you know, being the people of God, being the Israelites and the chosen people of God actually comes with more responsibility, not less. Um, And so he calls people out. Um, Also, there's a phrase that it was translated differently in the, the... window um, notes that you have, but um, the day of the Lord mm-hmm. and the day of judgment. So, um, Amos, uh, there's there's a, a phrase that we actually see a lot, we'll hear a lot about um, with the different um, uh, prophets, and that is this phrase of the day of the Lord, which is a festival day but it starts to take a different understanding and a different shape with Amos um, to not just be this wonderful day of festivities, but actually a day of judgment um, and a negative, a negative tone. So we'll actually hear more about that in, in other prophets. So do you have anything to add about that? Oh, no, the window. Great. Yeah, yeah, sorry, the, the, the Amos window, when you come back. Uh, is uh, is the one in the back corner there? It's uh, it's there's, some of the windows are double windows. So uh, Amos oh, top, is yeah. the, the very top is not Amos. The above the balcony, 
but below the balcony, Amos is the top, and Jonah is underneath him. Um, you want to keep going? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Is When he's like, the, uh, you've done this, and then in your fourth transgression, like it, for, for three for, things, for three things you, you three did, things that you've done, you would have been forgiven for, but the fourth thing that you're not going to be forgiven for. Right, but it's constantly. Three. I mean, three is a, a sim, It has symbolism within within probably both of, both of our traditions. So I don't know anything other than. I, you know, I, I honestly, have, I don't have like a, a good off the top of my head answer other than it's a, it's a like, um, it's a rhetorical device, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, like as the speaker may be speaking without notes, like I can remember that I'm going to say three things and then a fourth thing, right? Um, uh, but also it helps the listener remember too, right? That like, they're like, oh, you know, like you said that we're, you know, I, I remember those three things, um, but then you really <laughs> nailed me on the fourth one, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know of any other. I think you're probably right. If we're, you know, as as Rabbi Knopf was saying that, you know, we've got these these prophets that are doing something different, and so their uh, words are much more poetic, and they talk in metaphors, and um, I imagine them being the, uh, you know, like a really good you know preacher that you're like, oh, that's so exciting, oh my gosh, and they wrap you in, and then they call you out, um, and so that it's a rhetorical device to. But I mean, they always tell us in preaching, say something three times. Right, say something three times. Like they, and, 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 and it's, you know, I'm like, I, I used Elvis. I used Elvis before, right? Um, but you know, like, it's one for the money, two, two for the show, them. three to get ready. Now go, go, go choose step up this way, choose. So it's there's, there's um, and I'm just like thinking about in in uh, in uh, the. Um, a repetition in, in, yep. in units of three happens yep. in music all, all the, time, the time, poetry all the time. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Um, so three has that significance in Judaism. Also, three uh, the the uh, three patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yep. So I mean, numbers three, seven are usually ten, usually very significant. So, um, I'll, I'll share about Hosea. Um, I like Hosea's fun. He was a younger contemporary of Amos. Um, also was in the time of the kings of Jeroboam and Israel, Uzziah, and uh, in the south. Um, and uh, he prophesied to the north. Um, chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea frame the accounts of the prophet's marriage to Gomer, which is really interesting who is thought to be a promiscuous woman. Um, and he uses this as a metaphor to describe the relationship between God and Israel. Um, you know, you can only take a metaphor so far. I just wondered, like, as he got right, <laughs> as he got started, if he's like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but... Um, uh, and then chapters 4 through 14. Well, they have a really useful mnemonic to remember about Hosea because he has, like, the essence of his prophecy at the beginning of his name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 Did I just say that? <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Todo. But it may go out to the baseball card. It, it could. Yeah. I mean, everyone will be buying them. Um, uh, uh, Rabbi Nobden talk a lot about what else is happening in this time, which is you've got this, these, these cults and people mainly worshiping this other god, uh, Baal. Um, and, uh, and this other god, Baal, was supposedly the god of uh, everything of oil and wheat and wine and really everything yummy, potentially. So uh, and so, there's this competition that's happening, right, between like whose god is better um, and and whose god is actually god of all. Um, but you've got these from a, a, a these, these other practices happening in a time. Um, where you've got this movement really to a monothe- monotheistic religion, but that's not how it started out, right? And so um, that's a lot of what's happening at this time. So um, adultery, uh, the, the way that Hosea is using this metaphor of his wife um, and Israel is that um, while Gomer is, I guess, being a prostitute and sleeping around, um, Israel is... is their, their sin is the adultery of worshiping this other Canaanite god um, who was widely revered um, in the northern kingdom. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, again, as I said, Baal was the deity that to provide grain and wine and oil, and Hosea insisted that it is actually not this Canaanite god that provides all this wonderful nourishment and good things, but actually the god of Israel. Um, so you better straighten up. So, uh, Oracle themes, idolatry, and social justice, um, judgment. But also, as we had talked about last week, that some of these um, books do contain oracles of hope. Um, and that if you straighten up and fly right, there is actually hope for you. Um, other concerns, the priests. This is the other thing where you've got this... this um, these issues arise that the priest is not doing his job, all right? The priest is supposed to be um, uh, encouraging uh, study and, and, and teaching people, and they're not. And instead, the priest is misled the people by encouraging sacrifices and offerings, which actually provide to the own priest's livelihood, right? So the priest actually got to eat the sacrifices that people brought in, that they were making to to God. Um, And that the priest, he says, the priest is is feasting on the sin of the people. Um, And that sacrificial cult distracts from what is important, which is actually service to God. Um, Political critiques, the final decades of Israel is racked with kings, um, murder, and uh, tributes to Assyria. And Hosea's critique is that Israel was looking for salvation through political solutions instead of God. Um, seek God. So, um, yeah, lots of metaphors to portray God in Hosea, including the jealous husband, but also the loving father. So, anything else to add on Hosea? That's great. Yeah. All right, you can go.
Share one. What's your trading card? Okay. We actually divvied these up like in a style. You take. Well, do you want to? Can you? Uh, you want to do Elijah real quick since you brought up the issue of like the the um, the conflict between the God of Israel and the Baal. Sure. Oh yeah, that was next. Uh, for those, when you come back, our Hosea window is uh, the one in the back corner there. So Hosea is connect is the top panel, and then Joel is the um, is the bottom panel. Um, Y'all doing okay? And Elijah okay. is. Oh, sorry. Oh yeah, where's Elijah? I did. Um. Wait. Sorry. <laughs> one, two, like three, four. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really beautiful. Oh, oh Esai. Sorry. Um, uh, Esai's that side. Um, so, Hosea, wait, what did I say about Amos and Jonah? Oh, Amos and Jonah's west side. So, that. Uh, okay, anyway. Um, I have to go back and look. Uh, when, they're, when it's light, I can see because the, these uh, uh, directions are not really helpful. One, two, three, four. Does that count? One, two, that must count. One, two, three, four, five. Got it. Okay, so uh, Hosea is, uh, if you see right in front of the balcony, that window, uh, Hosea is the top panel, Joel's the bottom panel. I was uh, mistaken when I was telling you uh, Amos and, and Jonah. Um, that would be the, also the one before the balcony um, with uh, Amos, the top panel, and um, Jonah, the bottom panel. And then Elijah no, is this one. No, Elijah is oh. below the balcony on oh, the east sorry. side, so over there. Elijah's over there. Okay. So Elijah, yes. Could you take pictures of them when it's daylight? That's what we had just talked about. So yes. we have, cool. uh, Mike, are you using the, are there pictures of them in there? Great. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's the old version of a new booklet that we're putting out um, that has some descriptions of the windows. Um, and it'll, pictures? we can pass around with you. I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be a link on the Bethel website, a little mm -hmm. page that has photographs of the windows. And well, I'll, I'll take a quick look as you keep on going. Oh, I wish we had known that, because yeah. we were going to, all right. Like, we can send it out to the email list. Yeah, we will. So, Elijah, um, not a literary prophet, so if you were trying to find the, like, book of Elijah, and you're like, I couldn't find it, no. Um, but he totally dominates First uh, Kings and Second Kings, so look for Elijah there. Um, his story is close to um, Elisha, um, and but each prophet performs because uh, because each prophet performs miracles on behalf of a widow um, by increasing her oil. This miracle, um, but, but also raising um, a child from the dead. Um, but Elijah's uh, story really reflects a deeper theology. Um, and so, again, concerns are worship of Baal um, and also a champion of social justice. Um, Elijah's name literally means uh, Yahweh is my God. Uh, he's concerned with, uh, about the life and the religion of the kingdom of northern Israel. Um, there is a, a drought which... Elijah interprets as punishment on King Ahab because of the worship of Baal. Uh, similar to Hosea, Elijah was concerned that the people um, see and decide who actually provides uh, the grain and the wine and the oil. Is it, is it Baal or is it Yahweh? Um, and so they actually have a, a miracle off, a pray off. Um, 
<laughs> and um, Elijah performs a couple of miracles to prove who provides these necessities. Um, so the first is that he, like I said, he, he increases the oil and meal and raises this child from the dead and emphasizes that these acts are actually done um, because of the power of, of Yahweh. So, um, background, most people were probably worshiping um, both uh, Baal and Yahweh, but Elijah just did not want to put up with that. So he actually, again, like has this sort of contest, this sort of pray-off between Yahweh and Baal, and it's very, very dramatic showdown. Um, and the challenge is which God is going to answer the prayers first, um, and not just first, but like with fire. Who's going to answer this, these prayers with fire? Um, and, and whoever does that is the winner. So the prophet Baal, um, those pe- the people who are worshiping Baal are like bashing themselves and trying to get them into some sort of prayerful ecstasy, um, which Elijah's like, you really shouldn't have to work that hard. And Elijah actually produces fire by pouring water on the offering, um, and the point is proven that without a doubt, these, Yahweh is the winner. So Yahweh was God. Um, what else? Oh, there's, he calls out um, some other things that, that he calls out. King Ahab wants to buy his neighbor's vineyard, um, but he won't sell it. So Jezebel... Uh, his wife falsely accuses the neighbor um, and the neighbor's put to death and then how conveniently um, uh, Ahab is able to take possession and Elijah pronounces a curse on the family which actually doesn't happen to King Ahab but happens to King Ahab's son so happens later. Um, the other big thing to know about Elijah and this is important um, because we hear it for Christians, because it, it, it comes up um, in Christian tradition, is the earthly departure or earthly retirement of Elijah and how that happens is he is taken up to heaven on a fiery chariot. And because Elijah has not died, it is believed that he will come back. And it is believed that he will come back before the Messiah. Um, and in the Jewish tradition, um, a place is set for Elijah at the Passover meal in anticipation of his return. Um, so, anything else to add for Elijah? Yeah, no, that's great. All right. Can I ask one question about yeah. the Jewish and the Christian tradition? Yeah. Do you think these things actually happened, um, or do you think that it was just sort of written to be persuasive? Which things? Like the, like Which the, parts? the fire and the, the parts of the miracles, if you want to call them that, that the prophets did. <laughs> I don't think they did. So I'm yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think what is important to remember is not whether or not these things actually did or didn't happen, but what are we supposed to learn from this story? What is what are these sacred stories trying to remind us and trying to tell us? What are we supposed to learn from it? Um, so. You know, I, I doubt that Elijah, like a fiery chariot, said Elijah, um, you know, but, but, but maybe like, like maybe that did happen, you know, you know, we struggle that too, like in the Christian, Christian tradition, like, was Jesus really born of a virgin? Like, 
I tend to think probably not. But what is deeply still just as meaningful um, is that an unwed teenage mother gave birth to someone who profoundly changed the world. And doesn't that give hope to people in our own society who may found, find themselves unwed um, and, and a teenage mom? Because and, 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 that still happens today, and it's still very scary. You know? So I, I think that's what I would, that would be my response. Mark, you have a question? I think part of what you're thinking of a lot is, <clears throat> and I imagine what a lot of the same in, in Judaism, but you have very fundamental If you don't believe in it, then what does it mean? Is that the question? No. Like, oh. do you actually think it happened? Like, just personally, like, like personally. Oh, yeah, right, personally, yeah. no. <laughs> but I, mm, I'm not so I'm not so willing to be as categorical about that. Um, uh, I think that once you start getting into um, uh, texts that have a corroborating history, like the Book of Kings, it's harder to have things in them that are um, deliberately ahistorical. So I'm not so sure. I'm mean, like I'm not sure exactly what happened in the confrontation with Elijah and the priests of Baal, but I'm <laughs> I'm, I, I'm I'm I don't know. I have reason to believe that that encounter happened and that something happened that convinced the author of that text that Elijah came out victorious. Um, so, um, you know, I don't know. So I, there was I, also a lot of de like deviation, deviation, yeah. and mad. Like that thing, yeah. those things were happening at this time. That was common. Right. You know? And, and you know, and you also have the problem that those texts are often polemical, right? So yes. they're, they're written, they're written in order to, 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 right, get a point across to an audience yeah. that like, yeah. that like, of course you should, you should believe our God is God. Now, there's a piece of me that wants to say, I think, and I don't know if you heard my sermon this past Shabbat, but I quoted uh, the show Fleabag, yeah. um, where, the, where Hot Priest says... Uh, <laughs> that's actually his name. Like, that's the actual yeah. character. No, I, yeah. So he says, he says, uh, he says to Fleabag, he says, like, um, why believe in something dreadful when you can believe in something amazing, right? So obviously, like, like has that, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I read those stories of Elijah 
um, is say, okay, you know, like, let's take Elijah's word that he is, um, or at least the author of the text sees him as the one person who's still alive. That's what he says in the book. I'm the, one, I'm the only person that's still alive that's loyal to the God of Israel. And like, what is it like to actually stand in opposition to everything your society assumes is right and true and good? And like, how does that feel? Um, how does it feel to confront the most powerful people in, in your society with that conflicting perspective and to be alienated and ostracized because of it? Um, that's what you get in that text in Elijah. And then he has to go to heaven in a chariot. Like, like, he's, like he's not fit for this world, you know? Um, <laughs> but I'll be back. <laughs> uh, yeah. Should I do a couple? Yeah. Baseball yeah, cards? You may have to start choosing which, yeah. which prophet. Um, okay, yeah. so I'll do a couple. Um, yeah, you I'll do, do first Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. Why don't you just do first and I think we'll I'll do first and second is Isaiah. Yeah, just yeah. Do it. yeah. So why do I call it for we we said this a little bit last week. Um, it uh, uh, it was traditionally assumed that the book of Isaiah, because there's one book called Isaiah, that it is a unity. Uh, but modern scholars say that that is likely not true. Uh, the um, the roughly speaking, the first half of the book, chapters one through thirty nine, um, are a, a, a very different. Uh, style of prophecy, message of prophecy, uh, to have different historical cues and markers than, roughly speaking, the second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66. Um, there are other scholars today who think actually um, it may be three books, um, that 1 through 39 is one book, and 40 through 55, I think, is another book, and then 55 through 66 is, is a third book. And then it's even within that, it's a little bit complicated. There are uh, passages and chapters within uh, each of those that don't seem to fit and may have been like, um, edit, like stuck in there by an editor because, I don't know, this reminds me of something. And I'm going to quote this here, but I'm not going to tell you that I'm quoting it, whatever. Because um, So it's a little bit unreliable. But roughly speaking, chapters 1 through 39 of, Is of the book of Isaiah, um, uh, Scholars think constitute a unity by a, a person that was actually a person uh, uh, who prophesied whose career was um, during the late 8th century. So a little bit after the time um, that uh, Reverend Holly was talking about with Amos and Hosea, who were like in the 760s, 750s, uh, 740s. Isaiah was like 730s, 720s, uh, um, uh, uh, maybe on into the seventh into the early seventh century, uh, so his prophecy spans. He pro he was uh, uh, he he was from and prophesied in uh, in Judah primarily in in Jerusalem. Uh, he, if you follow that timeline, his uh, his career overlapped the destruction of the uh, of the northern kingdom, which happened in seven twenty two, um, and. It's pretty, you know. It's like it's like if you're living in Virginia and uh, and and uh, you know all of a sudden like Maryland gets conquered by uh, Pennsylvania, um, like you're going to hear about it most likely, and you might have thoughts about it. Um, and so Isaiah uh, has thoughts about that, about uh, what's happening 
uh, in the kingdom of Israel. And, and you can imagine if that scenario were to happen, if Pennsylvania conquers Maryland, um, there might be a little bit of anxiety here in Virginia about, uh, about what happened there, what might happen to us. Uh, and so that is true in, um, in, in Judah in the century or so following the destruction of the northern kingdom. There's, there's all sorts of hand-wringing and anxiety and, uh, and fear uh, about, um, about how to avoid the fate that, uh, that, that befell Israel. Of course, you know, they, they weren't, the Assyrians didn't just conquer Israel, they, they took... Sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. Could you... <laughs> when I said, when I said Assyrians, yeah, that's funny. Um, God, is that you? Uh, so, um, the Assyrians didn't just, you know, conquer uh, the northern kingdom, they, they took it over and assumed it as part of their empire, and so they're literally at the doorstep of the kingdom of Judah, and so the kingdom of Judah is, a, is afraid uh, of, of what might happen to them. So this is all kind of the backdrop of Isaiah, who is um, uh, uh, prophesying just after kind of this, the zenith of, uh, of uh, the, the, the uh, you know, the height of the power and, and prosperity of the kingdom of Judah and in the backdrop of the destruction of Assyria. Um, so he uh, rails against social and economic injustices in Judah, uh, a corrupt and uh, drunken ruling class, very colorful language about uh, the, uh, the drinking habits of the ruling class, um, and uh, a, a consistent theme, the persistence of, uh, of pagan worship, of foreign worship. Um, so this is a recurrent theme among the prophets, Amos, Hosea, Elijah, who's not a literary prophet, but nevertheless, um, Isaiah. Um, they, uh, they, they are constantly, you know, sometimes the disloyalty to the God of Israel is cast in moral terms, right? You're, you, you're, you're, it's a betrayal to the God of Israel if you uh, uh, treat the poor with indifference um, or, or abuse your workers uh, or allow for bloodshed, right? Um, so that's, that's true and a consistent message of the prophets, but it is also very technically a betrayal of the God of Israel if you are actually giving sacrifices to another God, right? And so uh, many of the prophets are, uh, are, are, are commenting very directly on that. Um, and again, uh, I think this was something that you said about uh, Hosea, that, um, that the prophets and Isaiah among them um, are commenting directly on the, um, on the political realities of their day, right? So these were also preachers um, that audiences uh, would have said, keep politics, and often did, keep politics out of the pulpit. But they talked about politics all the time, uh, and, uh, and, and usually had very choice things to say about the political realities of the time in which they're living. So Isaiah um, uh, uh, um, inveighs against uh, the, uh, the, the choice of the kingdom of Judah to uh, forge an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. Uh, a lot of the prophets, a number of the prophets, um, are uh, unhappy with that particular alliance. Um, they attack, uh, Isaiah attacks Judah's pride and power and wealth, um, uh, excessive pride and alienation from God. Um, but what's, I think, really memorable about 
First Isaiah is that he prophesies all of, he, he has all of these critical messages about the uh, people and power structure of Judah, and therefore uh, insists that if the people are to persist in that kind of behavior, that form of decision-making, forging alliances with Egypt instead of aligning themselves with God, that ultimately what happened to the kingdom of Israel is going to happen to the kingdom of Judah too. But, he says, that even if that were to happen ultimately there would be a restoration. And so some of the most memorable prophecies of Isaiah um, uh, reflect on that restoration. So um, um, just to give you uh, one quick example of that. So chapter 2 of Isaiah, the word of Isaiah, son of Amos, prophesied concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mount of the, of the Lord's house shall stand firm above the mountains. So the mount of the Lord, Lord's house that he's referring to is the temple mount in Jerusalem, which you could still visit. Um, and you could see that uh, though it is uh, um, the... Um, uh, the highest of the of the peaks in in that specific region, it is by no stretch of the imagination the highest of all the mountains. What Isaiah is talking about is sometime in the future. Some uh, uh, so in, in days to come, he's not talking about like tomorrow. This is going to happen, right? He said that that ultimately the the situation is going to be radically transformed. So the mount of the Lord's house will stand firm above the mountains and tower above the hills, and all the nations shall gaze on it with joy. Right? So, again, right, Isaiah, he's reflecting on a reality that we are beset by enemies and we're probably going to fall to them. Right? And, uh, and you're going to wonder, people of Judah uh, in that time, uh, did our God abandon us? Or is that not really a universal God? And Isaiah is saying, no, know that this is what's going to happen in, in future times, that God is going to reveal God's self as the God of everyone. The mount of the Lord's house is going to be the highest of all the mountains. The situation is going to be radically transformed. Instead of being enemies to us, all of these people are going to want to be with us and like us. And many people shall go and say, come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Right? Everybody is going to uh, want to party with Yahweh that he may instruct us in his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For Torah shall come, or instruction shall come forth from Zion, which is another term for Jerusalem, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Thus he will judge among nations and arbitrate for the many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not take up sword against nation. They shall never again know war. Pretty famous passage, right? So he's uh, predicting, Isaiah is predicting uh, a, a time of radical transformation uh, and of a, uh, a, a, of a universal alignment of the peoples in the world with, the, with, with what he sees as the, the truth of, um, of, 
uh, of uh, Israel's relationship with God and of, of God's um, uh, reality in the world. So again, he's prophesying the ultimate destruction of Judah, but also offering a message of hope and restoration, right? That, that, that eventually God is not going to forget us forever, and also eventually everybody is going to recognize the error of their ways, including, of course, you. But all the peoples are going to recognize, not you. You didn't. <laughs> okay. All right, so that's, uh, that's a little bit about uh, First Isaiah. Second uh, Isaiah um, is a little bit of a, like if we were doing a baseball card of Second Isaiah, there'd be kind of like, you know, like on Facebook, where they used to, if you didn't have a picture on Facebook, uh, it used to have just like the outline of a face, right? That's what you would have for Second Isaiah, because we don't actually know uh, who he was. Or like on Twitter, where you just have like the egg picture. Or a bird, whatever it is, yeah. Um, so uh, that's Second Isaiah. We don't really know uh, much about Second Isaiah, um, but uh, we we assume that he prophesied during the Babylonian exile. Most of Second Isaiah are prophecies of of, of uh, comfort and hope and optimism and restoration. Right. So I think we looked at this uh, briefly uh, last week, but Isaiah chapter forty. Um, says begins with the words "Nachamu, uh, Nachamu, Ami, Nachamu, Yomar Elohechem." So, uh, comfort, O oh comfort, my people, uh, says your God. Uh, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and declare to her that her term of service is over, that her iniquity is expiated, for she has received at the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. Right. So, again, that, that kind of prophecy wouldn't really make sense unless there was bad things that had happened to Judah. So that's why historians think that this must have been written after the destruction of Judah in 586. Um, and, uh, and he's saying, he's saying, all this bad stuff happened to you. You actually got it much worse than you deserved. But don't worry, restoration is coming. Right? So that's sort of the theme of, uh, of Second Isaiah. And in fact, in our Second Isaiah window, which I believe is that one, um, the word nachamu, comfort, uh, is the is the word. Each of the windows has a has a word that kind of encapsulates the central theme, according to the artist of the prophets. And nachamu is the word for uh, Second Isaiah. Uh, but Second Isaiah, or maybe it's Third Isaiah, um, doesn't just give a message of hope and uh, restoration. He also uh, says that. Um, uh, it's not just that God is going to take you back in love and make everything okay again. There's still things that you have to do. So one of the most, for Jews, famous passages of second, maybe it's third Isaiah, is uh, chapter uh, 58, um, which, uh, which talks about, um, uh, which talks about uh, religious hypocrisy, right? And so imagine you are, a, uh, an exile from Judah who is engaged in you know, serious like prayer and chest beating and hair shirt wearing because you believe that God is punishing you for the sins, uh, for your sins, and that's why you're in Babylon. You're trying to get right with God again, right? And so Isaiah says, chapter uh, 58, to be sure, they seek me daily, eager to learn my ways, 
Like a nation that does what is right, that has not abandoned the laws of its God, they ask me for the right way. They are eager for the nearness of God, right? They're, 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 pray- they're going to synagogue in Babylon and they're praying, right? They really, really want to get back in God's good graces. Why then, when we fasted, did you not see? When we starved our bodies, did you pay no heed? Right? But they're, so they're fasting, and, but they're still in Babylon. Like, why are we still here? Why hasn't God forgiven us? Because Isaiah says, second Isaiah says, because on your fast day, you see to your business and oppress all your laborers. Because you fast in strife and contention, and you strike with a wicked fist. Your fasting today is not such as to make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast I desire? A day for men to starve their bodies? Is it bowing the head like a bulrush and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Do you call that a fast? A day when the Lord is favorable? No, this is the fast I desire. To unlock the fetters of wickedness and untie cords of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free to break off every yoke, it is to share your bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home when you see the naked to clothe him and not to ignore your own kin. So Isaiah is saying that it's not enough to just stand in prayer right, and think that God's going to respond to you. What you need, what, what, what God wants is actual alignment with, uh, with, with, with godliness. Right? So you can't simultaneously you know, be, in, be in synagogue or church praying and fasting and you know, bowing to the ground and beating your chest and, and, and then wonder why God's not listening because you're not doing what is actually required. So there is a piece of Second Isaiah. He's not all just like you know, touchy-feely, happy-clappy. Um, he also is morally demanding in that way too. But then he says, you know, um, then, your, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and uh, something else. I can't find it. But, um, right, that, uh, oh yeah, then shall your light burst forth like the dawn and your healing spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall march before you. The presence of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry, God will say, here I am. If you banish the yoke from your midst. And so if you do these things, then God will ultimately redeem you.